night and welcome to episode 51 of Pennies in the Well. I am your host, Violet the Abysmal Witch, and we are in the here and now on Sunday, March 8th of 2020 at 5, well, 4.59 p.m. of the new time, daily savings, whatever, uh, today. Yes, for those who are paying attention, this is the third podcast episode that I am recording today, even though you're getting them two weeks apart, because I am truly in a podcasting mood, and some of these things have been going through my head uh, for quite some time now. So this is, uh, my chance to get them out. And oddly, one of the things I really wanted to talk about is in this episode, but I had this need to get the other two out first before I got this one out. So here we are on the third episode recording in the day. Um, let's see how this goes. So I welcome you, dear friends, dear seekers, dear curious people, dear listeners to this episode as I welcome in the, oh, wait, I have forgotten my land acknowledgement, the here and the now. We are on the state and we are also on, um, recording on the ancestral unceded and traditional territory of the Kakite Nation of the Coast Salish peoples. As a second and third generation settler, I am blessed and proud to live upon this land and to share in the bounty that it has given to its, uh, to its bone people and its newly arrived people. And I welcome the Naturum who aid and support and connect with us in our journeys. I welcome in our ancestors of bone, of blood, and of bliss that have dreamed us into existence, those that are in right relationship with their death, that they may guide us further. I welcome in the deities who have the view, the long view, and see into the past and into the future, who bring to us the gifts of spirit unfolded. I welcome in death that we may end, that we may begin again, and that this breath may be, could be, as I took another one, the last breath ever, and to allow that breath out to know that this moment will end so that another moment may begin separate, distinct, flowing from, arising from, birth from. And we begin. So welcome again to episode 51. We have crossed the hurdle. I was actually looking back on uh, the dates because I've been uploading a lot today. Uh, seeing how for those first three years, I started in 2010, it looks like. Uh, so in those first three years until about 2012, I was quite active in my podcasting and then I became sketchy and sporadic and life changed and... Then there was the year or two of nothing. And then here we are in 2020, this newly emerging version of myself speaking often, it seems, and to my new worldview. And so we are going to speak to some new worldview, uh, tying back into communication so that uh, two episodes ago when I was talking about real connected communication... Now I'm going to get into some very specific situations that I have encountered where I find that we, societally speaking, we as people, have a tendency in North American culture, or at least the culture I am surrounded with, to engage in, in certain types of situations in very typical ways that are perhaps 
perhaps there is a different way to approach them. Perhaps there is a way that is both simpler and more engaging and could shift our relationships with people simply by changing how we react to things that are brought up. So we're going to begin. There's three of them. And we're going to start with number one, and truly in some ways the easiest to explain and to describe. We'll see if your experience of doing it is uh, (laughs) as simple and easy as the explanation. If you choose to engage with it, as always, these are invitations. I am opening up a perspective to you if you have not already considered it, or reinforcing a perspective if you've already have that I invite you to try and engage with and see what impact it has for you in your world, in how you interact, what uh, impact consequences and changes may result from engaging with these practices. Number one, the apology. I It really came up for me at work more than anywhere that when I first really could feel the impact of this, I was talking with my boss and she was talking about meeting with, uh, with someone who had, there was, there was a thing, wasn't a big deal. Um, it wasn't anything that we were worried about, but it was something that was really bothering the person. And she kept saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I wasn't there for this. It was a post conversation. And my boss was, don't worry about it no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And the cycle of that conversation that she related to me, it became just blindingly clear. (laughs) Is that, uh, it's kind of a funny phrase when you think about it, right? Blindingly clear. If it's that clear and you can truly understand it, that you're blinded, can you then no longer see? So are you truly perceiving anymore? blinded by the truth. It's really interesting when you start thinking about it, but it was so clear that the shining light of it was so bright that it wiped out any other possibility of interpretation. And it was simply this, that there was no, that there was, what was happening, what would have changed the circumstances is if my boss had said, I accept your apology. Because here's the thing, Here's the deal. Here's the meat. When we truly apologize, when we're saying we're sorry, we are saying that we feel we have done something wrong. We feel that we owe a debt. We are apologizing in order to relieve us of the guilt, the shame, that there is a a transactional thing going on here. And that when the receiving person does a don't worry about it, we're, we're negating that first person's experience. We're saying, it doesn't matter what you experienced. I don't put the weight or the importance on that experience. I don't see it the same. Uh, and if it's something that the person is truly deeply feeling this for, you saying, no, no, it's fine, doesn't it's not going to change how they feel. It hasn't resolved anything. They're just sitting there going, well, I feel bad and this is not an avenue that can change it. So I will keep holding to this debt that I feel I owe you because I don't know what else to do with it. And yes, this ties into forgiveness. So maybe this will get complicated. So 
The invitation, very simply, is that when someone apologizes for something, aside from the Canadian, I'm sorry. Okay, so <laughs> a little side trip. Um, okay, so the invitation is when someone says, I'm sorry, to accept their apology. The side trip is this, that there is uh, layers to an I'm sorry. There is the Canadian and I'm sorry. The I bumped into you uh, might have gotten in your way somehow or otherwise I perceive that I may have ever so slightly or greatly inconvenienced you and out of sheer conversational uh, societal ex... I don't know how we're built. It comes out I'm sorry. I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, it's a stereotype that is so true. It's so true. I encountered, I think it was last week or the week before, uh, a ping pong of I'm sorry that just was funny. There's uh, my bathroom at work. You, you go down a hallway. Um, there is, how to put this, there's a wall on the left-hand side and the wall ends. And to go to the bathroom, you go around the corner of that wall and then you walk back a few feet and then turn to the right and there's the bathroom. So that corner, because the majority of traffic comes from farther, comes from that direction where they're walking along the wall and then have to turn left and come back the same direction. Um, that I was coming out of the bathroom, so I was going to the inside corner, of course. I was coming out. The wall's now on my right. I'm going to go around it and go back down the hallway. And there was a person coming the other direction, and we almost collided. This happens relatively regularly, and we both went, oh, sorry. Um, well, or did I go, so it doesn't matter. One of us went, oh, sorry, and the other went, oh, sorry. No, sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, so Sorry. Well, I'm so sorry. And seriously, we, we were at a good 10 stories before we managed to disengage from our little story fest. It was deeply, deeply Canadian. Uh, and this type of thing does happen. Not to that extent, but the, the simple I'm sorry because um, you were coming that way and I didn't necessarily see you or expect you or anticipate you. And so I'm sorry for the potential inconvenience. God damn, we just we say sorry a lot. So there's, there's uh, the Canadian sorry. Then there's what I like to refer to as empathetically sorry. So if someone's having a, a rough time, you know, and you, the response that you give is, oh, I'm so sorry. And they look at me and say, it's not your fault. So I'm falling into this habit because I don't have a different phrase yet of saying, oh, I'm uh, empathetically sorry. Because people understand I'm empathetically sorry. I'm not, I don't feel guilt. I'm not apologizing for a behavior. I'm acknowledging the, that what you're going through sucks on some level and that uh, I empathize with you and I want you to hopefully feel better, but mostly I'm just commiserating with you. It's an empathetic story. And I really wish we had another phrase for it because it gets completely mixed up with I'm sorry in the sense of I feel guilty. I feel shame. I feel ownership of having done something wrong that I must atone for. I feel that I now owe you a debt. So that is a completely different form of sorry than the other two stories. And it is the story, sorry of today's topic. That is the story of which I wish to discuss. And that is the story when people offer it, we have this tendency, uh, which will tie into topic number two of making the person feel better by essentially saying that the debt doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Let it go. I'm perfectly fine. 
Well, it doesn't actually, as I said, it doesn't address the fact that the person feels that they have done wrong. And so it's an incomplete transaction. It's me going, I did a thing wrong. I owe you money. (laughs) I feel like I, I, I just stole your bagel. Here's $2 I owe you. And you going, yeah, it's fine. You stole it. I don't need the money. Don't worry about it. I'm like, well, I still owe you the $2 because if I don't give you the $2, then I truly have stolen your bagel. And then I'm a thief and I don't want to be a thief. So please, for the love of everything, will you just take my goddamn $2 so that we can actually be on an even field um, with this transaction, which leads me to contemplate in this moment about the power dynamic of dismissing the apology. Uh, And if that is also a fascinating factor of what's going on that we don't necessarily want to, um, you know, the person who can simply wave it away and say it doesn't matter holds the power, the authority, the money in this particular case, uh, that that is not so healthy and helpful for the other person's self-esteem who is in a position to be able to afford to make amends. If they can afford to make the amends, let them make the amends. Do not rob someone of their autonomy and their own power and their own ability to redress and make amends and to find balance in a situation by dismissing the offer of that apology. I have started putting this into practice where when somebody apology apologizes to me, I actually have a horrible time accepting the apology. It, it feels so wrong to just say, I accept your apology, even though simple, I accept your apology. It's four words. So simple, so hard to say. So my transitional statement has been, thank you for the apology. But I realize that thanking them is the, I acknowledge that you have given me the apology, but there's also an underlying statement of I haven't actually accepted it. So I appreciate that you are making amends, but I do not accept your amends, which is a perfectly fine thing to do and to say if that's actually what you're intending. Uh, If it's not what you're intending though, then there's this funky little trip of, well, I appreciate that you are making the amends, but I don't accept them. Uh, says something else about that transactional situation of, yeah, you've, it's kind of like me going, yeah, you fucked up. Um, and I understand that. And I appreciate that you want to make amends. Um, but I'm not in a position or in a place where I'm going to accept that. So there's still, um, a disconnect in the relationship. There's still a, a, a bumpy spot, a broken spot that hasn't been resolved. So something to think about, right? If you're apologizing, uh, does some is the other person able to accept your apology? Now, <laughs> if you're the one apologizing and they don't accept it, this is part of that whole, as you become more aware of these types of communication things and the other person is not necessarily aware, uh, it can be very frustrating because you know that you're specifically looking and hoping for a thing and they don't know that they are doing what is a typical standard communication reaction in our modern society and you end up in a very difficult place. Yeah, Uh, we could take a little side trip into forgiveness briefly. I I feel like, sure, let's do this really briefly Uh, because it does relate. And I've been 
I, I really struggled with forgiveness. It's not been an easy thing. I didn't understand it. And I think I've talked about this before. So if I'm repeating myself, my apologies. That I didn't understand forgiveness. I had to look up the word, but, and it essentially got to a place of, of forgiving is releasing a debt. So when we accept an apology, we are in, we are in essence forgiving the person. We are releasing the debt that they owe. I accept your apology. Therefore you are forgiven. They, they go rather well together. And if you, um, are, you thank someone, then it's the appreciating that they want to make amends, but are not actually forgiving them for it. And maybe that goes into forgive and forget. Uh, and that'll be a topic for another day, but I just toss that out there in the really quick way that if, um, for you to toy with on your own as to how forgiveness and, uh, accepting apologies can blend in together and relate to each other. And with that, let's move on to a related item with the number two item, which is, uh, essentially, I don't have a, a handy summarizing phrase for this one, but it's, it's letting people be where they are to, to allow negative emotions to have their place. Um, so in this example that I was talking about with my boss, in some ways, she was also enacting this item number two, which goes like this. So the person is apologizing and apologizing because they feel bad. And on my boss sitting there going, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it is the very epitome of trying to make the negative go away without acknowledging the negative. Uh, and really n nothing bad on my boss. Great boss. Um, it's just a, a handy dandy example that uh, is in my head. When we, th this has happened. So of recent times for my own personal uh, direct experience, I was commenting on how, mm, God, 15 and a half years ago, when I got my sweet darling boy as kittens, and I had my old kitty cat, and my other cat had died, and it was all very traumatic, and I didn't wait long enough to actually process grief, and I got the kittens too soon, but then, you know, if I hadn't done it, then I wouldn't have the boys, and you know, there's no changing the actions that were taken, but I can evaluate whether or not they were reasonable actions, and it was too soon, and I hadn't grieved, and it did cause problems, including my, my dear sweet Bastion boy, my little black kitty, when he was a kitten, when I first had him, it was pretty much the first or second night, he curled up just below my collarbone as I was lying down. So he was curled up on my chest. And it was the sweetest thing. Just adorable. Curled up on me, uh, loving and safe. And then my other cat jumped up and she was hissing and freaking out. And then I was freaking out because she was freaking out. And I'm trying to get her to stop freaking out. And then, you know, it, it was... It was misery. Uh, it was really poor. And Bastion has not to this day laid down. Well, actually, in the last year, there's been like two moments, very short, that he, but before that, never, where he actually would either sit or lie on me in any way, shape, or form. So I have intense regret for that moment. I fundamentally altered the course of our relationship in a way that was never something I can never fix 
in the sense of making it go to a place where he would have been the cat that curled up on me. And um, who knows? There's no knowing whether or not he would have or not after that point. However, I do tend to think that, you know, here we have example A of him curling up on me. Then there was a whole big massive freak out and then he never did it again. Does tend to think you think that A led to B. A led to B. I have deep regrets. Someone I know was really trying, you know, from a, a caring, loving place, trying to reassure me, you know, that um, it's not like he's holding a grudge, that it, it's perfectly fine. Uh, he doesn't care, blah, blah, blah. It was all ways of trying to make me be feel okay by saying, but it, essentially they were ways of trying to make me feel okay by saying that what I perceived um, wasn't, it's not that it wasn't accurate, but just, it was, it was trying to move me away from it. It was trying to move me away from that, that deeply regretful place and just make me feel better. And like I was talking about in the last episode, uh, in the regards to the land acknowledgement, if we, and, and just in that being centered from two episodes ago, see all today was connected, uh, that we have to, in order to really change, move forward, understand, be connected, be authentic, all of those various different expressions of ourselves into the universe, we need to accept all of it, the good and the bad, the easy and the hard, the things that make us happy and the things that make us despair, that they are all simply a part of us. And that's okay. And it's the being okay with those uncomfortable places and letting other people be in uncomfortable places and to support them in being in uncomfortable places. We don't like to see it. No, nobody likes to see the person excuse me, who's really upset. And we do things like, oh, you're really upset. Don't cry. It's perfectly fine. Cheer up. It'll be great. So we try and move people away from the negative emotion. You've heard me say it before. I'm undoubtedly going to say it again. And right now I'm going to say it in this moment. We need to go down to go up. We need to go in to go out. We need to feel where we're at before we can go into feeling something different. That statement or, or that encouragement from the person that I knew didn't help me move towards feeling better about it. It actually caused me to feel disconnected from that person because to me, they did not understand where I was at. They did not understand that I was feeling a feeling that needed to be acknowledged. And at a core level, that's what I'm talking about with this second point that I really wish I had a handy label for, but I don't, that we need to be able to really feel into those places and acknowledge that we're feeling that and to own that feeling and then to expand to encompass other feelings. I have that regret. It's a real regret. You know, is our relationship perfectly fine? Of course it is. He's a sweet, loving cat in his own way. And he loves to stand on people, though he will never sit on them, which is kind of annoying because those little paws can somehow, he's only like a 10 pound cat, but it feels like each paw itself can have 10 pounds depending on where he stands because cats have the amazing, infallible ability to put their paw in exactly the most painful place on the human body possible. I don't get it, but they're incredibly good at it. And he loves his attention in very particular ways. And, you know, there's a whole, it's good. 
we have a loving, caring relationship. And I have regret about that moment that changed the course of our relationship from that point forward. And I'm, I, I, and I sit here and go, I'm entitled to that feeling. It, it is real for me. And to, I, I would much prefer in that moment than I was having the conversation and now to, I don't need reassurance. Reassurance is not what I'm looking for. Uh, validation is a little more accurate. Um, reflection. So maybe that's the, the word that I'm looking for here is that we can give a great gift to someone who is expressing an uncomfortable place, an unpleasant emotion, a deep regret or problem, we can do them the great service of reflecting back to them that feeling and go, I see that you're suffering with that. I see that it hurts you to have that. I see that regret. I, I get why you feel that regret. To start the conversation there allows in a, a connection. So we're building connection through that acknowledgement of where, you, where we perceive the other person to be. And once we perceive that other person as having their real experience, oh, and that's going to be point number three, these are all tied together, then we can, then we can move from there and, and say things that are, uh, can help to bring the person to an additional perspective. Yes, I get that, that regret that totally makes sense and wondering what would have been and what a hardship and, and, you know, did that always wondering, did I behave badly? This is my fault. How much is my fault? How much debt do I owe? And I can, I can ask for forgiveness, but we're never going to be able to have a human conversation about forgiveness. And in his own way, he has forgiven me, but he's never forgotten. He's forgiven me the debt. I don't owe him anything for that, but he imprinted that action and he's never forgotten. He's never going to forget. And I referenced uh, earlier today uh, in a different episode about the piece of paper and I didn't really explain it in the moment, but I hopefully I caught it. The idea, um, some teacher I think explaining uh, the impact of cruel words to another person. So they take a piece of paper, a nice blank, clean piece of paper, and you know, you crumple it. Um, and that's like saying, uh, something really cruel to somebody, say another cruel thing and you crumple it even more into a little ball. And then when you're done, try and smooth it out, try and, and make that paper as pristine and beautiful as before the words were said. And you can't, the impact of the words are embedded now in the shape and the fabric and the form of the piece of paper. Forgiveness releases the debt and can change it from a crumpled piece of paper into a, a flattened out piece of paper again. But the impact forgetting is rare. It rarely goes back to the way things were before because the experience has become part of our history, part of our understanding of the world, which ties into a lot of dealing with trauma because irrespective of forgiveness, there's that forgetting part and uh, forgetting from conscious memory doesn't mean that it's forgotten from the body and then you have to deal with all of that fun stuff, but that's a topic for a different day. So 
the invitation here is that when you see or you experience because you're in a conversation with somebody that they are expressing a pain, a regret, um, a difficult emotion that instead of pulling them out of it to a better place, that you join them in it for a minute and you sit with them in it and go, yeah, this sucks. And I'm sorry you feel this way. I empathetically sorry. Um, uh, I, I'm sorry that you have to go through this. This is, this sucks. You know, there's all kinds of ways to commiserate, to go, yeah, th this is not where you want to be. I know that, uh, it hurts or it makes us angry. Like, and, and by saying it hurts, it makes it, it would make me angry too, uh, to acknowledge the feeling, the experience that the person is having and going, yeah, I get it. And, and see, I get it because I'm reframing it in slightly different words and I'm showing it back to you. We're reflecting back the experience and by reflecting back, the person is seen. In all of these examples, it's about seeing people as they truly are to not be obsessed with our own version of events but and, and our own need for there to not be negative things around us, but instead to go, yeah, yeah, I get it. Now, sometimes people go so far into that you're like, uh, I get the being angry, but right now you are more angry than makes sense for me in this particular state. So these are not... All of these tools, because we're talking about handling communication and connection with other living beings, we have to be very responsive and apply the right tool in the right moment and to be balanced about it. When people go really deep, again, when it's an always thing, anytime there's an always thing, warning, warning, because nothing is always except for the, the nothing that exists beyond the universe and everything else is just a portion of always. Anytime there is that statement of always, it's um, a position that we have bought into in a very unrational or irrational way, and it is a, a switch. It's a default setting or a switch or a safety um, fuse that goes off to protect us from something else and to go, hey, you know what, fine, I'm just, it's all bad. If something is all bad, well, then we've fallen past the point of being able to engage in a healthy and um, balanced way with our own life experiences. And instead, we have fallen into the hopeless, um, intense reaction of, again, the martyr or the demon and just freaking out. I get freaking out. I do these things when we get very emotional and when we've had repeated experiences in the same track, of course we're going to fall into that. And it's easier to be there than to battle. It is easier to completely give over than it is to battle, or it's easier to just fight, 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 and not soften and be vulnerable because it's not safe. It's always, or almost always, it seems a matter of safety when we do things like that. So that's the second one. Um, the third one, this might be a shorter podcast. I'm looking, we're only half an hour in. Uh, the third one is allowing, it, it's, the first one's acceptance. The second one is reflection. The third one is witnessing, which is not the same as reflecting. Witnessing 
is truly allowing the other person to be who they are, the way that they are, and to simply experience them in that way. Sounds simple, right? Well, by now you should know simple isn't easy, especially in our modern society where we have many uh, interesting methods of communication that are not always conducive to really healthy, happy communication. What happens with this? Uh, A recent example, I was at a place uh, at an event uh, that I saw somebody that I've known for a long time, rather tangentially, we run into each other, you know, sometimes a couple times a year, sometimes it can go years between running into uh, part of the pagan community, see periodically. And her skin looked great and I was commenting on it and she was telling me how she came to this really beautiful place where earlier in her life she would wear makeup, but it always was this kind of, you know, you have to wear makeup and felt put upon and, and she enjoyed, but is she supposed to enjoy and all of these questions and that she had come to a place of authenticity with herself of realizing that she enjoys the way she looks while wearing makeup. And so to make herself feel good, to enjoy, be like, um, to make herself feel good. She puts on makeup in the morning and she, every time she sees herself in the mirror throughout the day, she gets to enjoy the way that she looks and it just, it makes her feel good. So she's doing it not to be attractive to anyone else, but to be happy in her own place, in her own skin. And that's great. That is absolutely fabulous. That is doing something to make yourself happy. That's, you know, like the person who wants, who wears fancy clothes because they like to wear the fancy clothes because it makes them feel good, not because they have to. Um, uh, the person who, I don't know, <laughs> goes and works out because they enjoy working out. Whatever the example is, it's doing something for the pure love of doing it and for the way it makes ourselves feel, irrespective of what anyone else in our world thinks or reacts to about it. It's just about our own engagement with ourselves. That's beautiful. And I say, yeah, that's really cool. That's really awesome. I, I tend to not wear any makeup at all. I really enjoy wearing makeup, she says. Yeah, I tend to not wear makeup. She enjoys wearing makeup. I tend to not wear makeup. She enjoys wearing makeup. Tend to not wear makeup. It was kind of like that conversation of sorry around the bathroom wall, door, wallway, hallway. It, it was just, it was very repetitive because her desire to be seen and acknowledged for who she was in the moment, I wasn't meeting because instead of, hearing and seeing and listening to her and what she was expressing about herself, I was making it in essence about me and how I stood in relationship to what she said. Much of our conversational fun times comes from that. I see it all the time and I certainly have done it all the time. So these are, these are challenges I have for myself invitation, challenge, take it as you will. But I experienced them as challenges that I am now consciously trying to overcome because now that I'm aware of them, I can catch them sometimes in the moment. And if I can catch it in the moment, then I can potentially do something to 
act differently in the moment than I ha- than I have in the past when faced with those circumstances. Did that example make sense? Do I need more examples? That's what's running through my head right now. So witnessing, I've been struggling with this idea of witnessing. What is witnessing? I know the power of it and it is different from watching. Watching is a very disconnected, separate thing. You can be watched and not aware that you are being watched, except maybe in a spidey senses, tingling, creepy, stalker kind of way. Uh, With witnessing though, witnessing is active. Witnessing, we are aware of our witnesses. Witnesses give power to an action. They record it into the, they record it into existence. They take it from something that's just inside of us or just amongst two of us and make it something tangible into the world. They give it a greater weight and a greater power. You have witnesses for uh, legal documents for that reason. And we have witnesses in ritual sometimes. A lot of times when we do ritual when we have a, a big group, they tend to watch the ritual. So if you want to take, well, take a little side trip with me on the whole ritual making thing, trying to move from a place where people, if you've got a larger group ritual, which can be anything from three people up, are the so there's the the ritualists, the person who there are people who are doing the ritual when you are doing ritual. There are people who are doing active parts that are saying things, moving, doing actions that are carrying the ritual forward in time. And if you, you may or may not have, but if you do have people who are not doing any of those things in the group, uh, then what are they doing? In larger group rituals, it's not uncommon for there to be parts where, at least in the, the Wiccan rituals that I am used to, and well, other rituals to some degree that I've witnessed, for one or two or three people to hold center stage, at least for parts of the ritual, while the rest of the group watches. Uh, and then there would be sections where everyone else does take part, say, in a spiral dance or in passing around cakes and ale, where at least for a moment people are engaged. We don't actually talk about what's happening or at least I have not encountered people who talk about it. What is happening when the people who are not actively engaged are standing around watching? I feel that much of the time people are watching. They are passive participants in what's going on. They are there, uh, but they're not actively engaging with it. Now, sometimes, let's say when you're doing quarter calls, sticking to the Wiccan perspective, you're doing quarter calls and everyone turns and people could just watch it where they're just, yeah, you're doing the thing. You're invoking the West and water, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just watching you or we can witness it or we can also engage with it. So with the engaging, um, the, let's call them the chorus, the rest of the people who are part of the ritual, but not the main actors in the ritual, the chorus would, could potentially also do an invoking pentacle or raise their hands and direct energy to invoke that quarter invocation. Witnessing 
is that slightly different place in between the two where it's not an amplification of energy because that's the chorus and actively engaging, but witnessing is also more than just watching. It is taking note on a very visceral level of seeing, truly seeing and experiencing what is going on. It is the, the recording of it. So it's, it's like being the movie maker instead of the movie watcher. That in this case, when I'm talking about here, when we witness somebody in a conversation, when they are talking about a belief or a practice that they have, where we typically want to engage with a, yeah, okay, I see you. And here's what I do. You now see me. We move so quickly into the now see me. Have we actually seen the other person? Have we truly acknowledged where they are at? Have we witnessed them in all of their glory in that moment? They've just done a thing. Uh, I feel like when people, when people watch an art performance, that it's more witnessing. It can be just watching, can be that casual, but I think sometimes when it's truly elevated, that there is a witness, that you have witnessed the experience, not just watched it, but witnessed. I'm still struggling to articulate the difference, and I, I know that, and I acknowledge that, and I invite you to, uh, if you have a better way to articulate it, to send it to me, penniesinthewell at gmail.com. And to just work this through yourself, can you feel into it? Can you feel the difference of watching versus witnessing? Can you feel the power that is brought into it when you're engaged and present and that somebody who has witnessed, what a gift that is. I've long felt that love is expressed through attention, that we feel love when we feel that someone is paying attention to us, either by giving us gifts that we truly appreciate um, or when they give us gifts that we don't necessarily appreciate in the same way because it's not our love language, but at least they were expressing their love language, like there's degrees of it. But still, we experience love through attention. If we don't receive attention, we do not experience that we are being loved. Well, with witnessing, there's this being seen, truly seen for who we are. And there's an acceptance. See, they're all tied together. There's an acceptance and a reflection back that by witnessing, we're not actively reflecting necessarily in saying the things back, though we could be, but allowing the person to be just who they are and accepted in that moment for just who they are as they present themselves. So for the person who was doing the makeup and the conversation could well have been, um, you know, I, I love putting on makeup for myself. Oh, tell me more. Tell me what your experience with that. Oh, what is that like? How does it feel? That's really great. That's really cool. And to stop there. What if I feel like the witness stops there? That is the witness role is to acknowledge what was seen is to sign off on it as it were like that court document. I see you. I've heard you, I acknowledge it, I recognize it, and I give it that extra bit of weight by, by acknowledging it. And there needs to be the acknowledging. The watcher doesn't acknowledge. There's no acknowledgement back to that which is witnessed. There is but the, but the watching. It's a very 
in essence, I suppose, selfish process or very disconnected process. Um, so invitation challenge when you're in conversation or when you're in ritual, when you're standing as part of a chorus, who's not actually chorusing in that moment, are you witnessing or are you watching? If you're in a conversation and someone's telling you about their belief or their practice, are you witnessing? Are you watching? Or are you making it about yourself by going, Oh, this is what I, this is what I think. And I do do that a lot. Um, I really love tossing my opinions around. So this one is definitely a challenge for me that to engage with a little bit more and a little stronger to really allow myself to witness when, and there's a lot going on. I'm hesitating because the next example that really comes to mind in this modern era of ours is when people talk about politics and we end up in such disarray and such conflict and we don't feel heard. One of the beauties about witnessing somebody, truly witnessing them, is that they feel heard. Well, you know what happens when somebody feels heard? Then there's a, a filament of a bridge or a connection formed. And when they feel heard, guess what? They may be more willing to listen to us as well. When we start to, to build a connection and a connection, you can't see my hand, it's going back and forth as if I'm stitching, and we create a bridge between two different viewpoints, not by going, you need to be on my side of the bridge, and not by throwing myself onto their side of the bridge, or on my side of the canyon, or their side of the canyon, but instead going, both sides of this canyon can exist at the same time. This is particularly difficult in modern politics when there is such divide and it's very hard sometimes to find connection points between the, the two sides of this great gaping chasm that the conservative liberal, for a lazy way of describing it, divide has become so fraught that any mention of the other side raises the, the boundaries, the hackles, the, the barriers, and we refuse to engage instead of going on the other side of this conversation is another human being. And that human being has a particular perspective. And here's the funny thing. Usually underneath of that perspective, there are the same issues at play. We all want to be safe. And if we're safe, we dare to hope that we could have more in this world. And therefore, how do we get it? And we want to keep our own safe. And we want our own to have more if possible. It's the definition of our own that usually becomes a problem. What is inside of our group and what is outside of our group? The bigger the, our group is... Like, is it all of people? Is it all of Terra? Is it all of us in this uh, organism that is Terra? Is it Terra? Is that our in-group? Is humanity our in-group? Is our bone ancestry our in-group? Is our uh, in-group made up of 
um, our geographical location? Is our in-group made up of our political orientation? Is it made up of our spiritual orientation? Is it made up of our gender orientation? What is our in-group? And we all have multiple in-groups. When we get into difficulty, often I feel is that the we're, we're discussing things at different levels of in-groups. Um, that may or may not be true. It's a thought I put out there right now. I do know, absolutely know for certain, that one of the biggest impediments towards in communication that is effective is a lack of agreement on basic definitions in the conversation. <sighs> Huge huge problem. When I see people arguing about deity, let's say, well, what I have found is that they're arguing. <laughs> the arguments arise because one is viewing deity as the dreamer, let's say. So if you see deity as the dreamer, as that beyond all knowing beyond comprehension, allness, oneness of spirit uh, that dreamed us into existence is discussing deity with somebody who sees deity as the personification of that universe into a specific part that is very relatable, that is actually a humanized, as it were, human-esque version um, of, of that spirit those are two different levels. And if you don't agree that you're talking about two different things, then you are going to have difficulties in communicating. Extra fun is when people assume that they are viewing and talking about uh, deity as dreamer, when in actuality, they are talking about humanized deity, then their own internal definitions are, are muddy and messy. And then the conversation is hopeless uh, because they do not have a clarity on their own positioning. They don't know where they are in their own understanding, then you're never going to get anywhere because the, um, there's, you, you can't get into a discussion about where you are in relation to each other. If one of the people does not actually know where they are. Definitions, big, big thing. If you find that you're in a standoff conversationally, consider looking for definitions. What are the definitions that are underlying the, the discussion that you are assuming that you, you hold as equal, that you have the same definition for something? Magic, life, uh, these are things that can have, <laughs> they're very broad uh, and they can end up with very different definitions. Now, you can also get into difficult places, again, with authenticity where, as I was just alluding to, I'm coming, because I said life, um, the pro-life people who are using it as a way of controlling other people who are not considering the ramifications of it. And it becomes deeply frustrating for people who have a broader definition of life, who are looking at a, a broader context. So beyond definition, we need to get into context. How big of a context are you holding this conversation in? If the context is really small, if you're talking about uh, loss of job, so a coal, coal miner who's losing a job, who's talking about um, energy and how energy should be used and, and such, 
they are most likely because it impedes on their survival and therefore their safety. Their focus is going to be a very narrow context, which is if coal goes away, my job goes away. And that is a very understandable and difficult position. From there, if you go to the opposite end of that concept, and if you're not directly impacted in that moment um, by it, by talking about sustainable energy, moving away from coal, well, if your job is not in that cold industry, then the end of the coal industry does not impact you personally. It's a lot easier to talk about. What therefore we're trying sometimes in conversations to do is to witness where the person is at, reflect back to them that we understand what is going on and why they are having the reaction they are having, and then invite them into seeing about a broader context. It's It's another and situation. It's not a denial of where they are. Yeah, losing your job sucks. And can you understand my, my worries about my child, if I had one, being able to still breathe the air in 50 years, of having food in 50 years, because of having a place to live in 50 years, because those are three different impacts of climate change that are happening in the climate emergency. So engaging um, in an and situation rather than a you're wrong you're stupid. So if you say you're stupid, well, you've now made it personal. You've made it about them. So of course, somebody's going to protect themselves and go, well, fuck you. Of course, fuck you. You're calling me stupid. Fuck you. you don't, I'm not an idiot. Mm, no, they're typically not idiots. Their context is perhaps smaller. Their context is perhaps in a different focus because their perspective is coming at it from a different place. And almost invariably, they are keeping themselves or those closest to them, a part of their in-group, safe. And hopefully um, being able to have a bit more in life because humans are greedy. Oh, that got heavy at the end there, didn't it? But it is done. Those are my, my three invitations to you or challenges to you in regards to communication. Uh, and engaging in relationship with people to accept apologies or not, but be conscious. Are you accepting an apology or are you not accepting an apology of allowing someone the space and the support and the, the care to hold somebody who's going through something and allow them to be in that difficult place until they're ready to take in support to get them out rather than trying to just drag them out in the first place. So letting, letting the negative be there and doing that through reflection, typically. And then finally, to letting yourself be witness to someone else's uh, experience, to someone else's mm, practice, somebody else's worldview, to witness them as they really are and see them as a human being who, as a human being, has life and that life has worth and to allow that in. Can you dare to be that generous? Can you dare to be that brave? And then work from there to building connection to building a place where we all understand a little bit better uh, <laughs> the dire straits that we've gotten ourselves into because quite frankly, our, um, we're in a scary place. 
with the climate emergency and it's emergency now it's it's we've passed climate change and if you're hearing climate emergency and dismissing me then uh, then my challenge to you is to really read into the research to really look at it and to dare to feel because I can feel it ah the joy of my generation I bridge I bridge I am generation x and we do get left out a lot even from lists sometimes that was a very funny moment and I was I was around when the computer thing really started into the homes so we we were cutting edge man when I was eight year olds we had a computer in the home be why because my brother uh, was nine years older than me and was a became a computer scientist so we had a computer in the house when I was like eight nine years old that was unheard of when I was a kid and it has moved now to laptops and our phones are personal computers. I went through the whole, um, I remember cell phones becoming a thing. They came out pretty much in the eighties. I was a teenager. I've witnessed all of this technological change and I have witnessed weather change because I have lived in one region my entire life and it is different. The quality of air is different. When I visit beaches, they are not the same. Uh, there is not the abundance um, of life in insect life and uh, variety of life. I, I have direct personal experience of this because I've been alive long enough to see it all. And at the same time, I've been alive in a time and an era that encouraged me to adapt along the way. I'm not trying to hold on to the past. I'm merely a witness who has seen the past and sees the present as it is and sees a future that is variable, but past a point of no return. We still get to choose how we react to it, but we're not stopping the climate emergency. It's just a question of how we're going to adapt to it. Sea levels are gonna rise. How much they rise and how we react to it, that's the question. Whether or not we're able to get to a place where as humans, uh, as a race, we can acknowledge that we are in dire straits and that we need to do something that is not about putting money into pockets and to move from a place of lobbying because a company has money to spend to make sure that they get more money. Our fixation on money, definite problem. These are hard, scary places. They're really hard and really scary. It's absolutely terrifying. And I understand completely the desire to just focus in on what I can handle right now in front of me, which is, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job if the coal factory closes down. I get that. I really get that. We need to get it and we need to support people into being able to handle change. We can't yell at them and force them into it. We need to support each other into it. So that is going to be my final plea, I guess, of this evening in this podcast. I hope that something in this rambling has proven useful to you. You have some invitations and or challenges, depending on where you sit with them, before you. If you wish to take them up, that is, of course, completely up to you. And so I thank, I thank the Naturum for supporting me in this endeavor. I thank my ancestors for dreaming this moment into existence through my existence. I thank the deities for lighting the way forward. I thank death for giving me an appreciation for life. 
And I thank you, dear listener, for making it to the end. Blessings of the deep and wild to you. Blessed be.